I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined by Howard Tierski, a New Yorker who is the founder and CEO of the Digital Transformation Agency. He's also recently published a book entitled Winning Digital Customers, and um, he will talk to us about the five-phased approach outlined within the book on this podcast. So let me introduce you to Howard now. Hey, Howard, uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, I think uh, that you are our first guest from the US, so, so welcome. Oh, well, uh, thank you for having me, Tony. And, and no hard feelings about the whole Revolutionary War thing. That's all. <laughs> Let's not talk about the war. <laughs> <laughs> the tea taxes, we've, we've forgotten all that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So um, we, we always start off the, the, uh, the podcast with an introduction. Uh, so it's an opportunity for you to introduce yourself uh, to listeners. Quick summary of your career to date, really. Uh, but also, if you could just sort of talk about initially how you got into the world of transformation in the first place. Sure, sure. Well, hmm, I uh, I run a, um, a consulting firm and a, and a digital agency, which is called From, the Digital Transformation Agency. I founded that about 14 years ago. Before that, I spent about 15 years with Ernst & Young Consulting and Capgemini running uh, digital practices for them. And of course, if you add up all those years, you realize that I was doing that quite early. So I was, uh, you know, I had the good fortune to be working at a place like Ernst Young Consulting that works with, you know, tons and tons of global Fortune 1000 type brands at a time when everybody was just sort of realizing that there was this thing called the internet and maybe they should be doing something with it. And of course, over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, we've gone from that being a kind of a, of a niche side experiment to, for many businesses, the central most important part of their customer value proposition, or at least one of the most important parts. And so I've been working kind of step-by-step with large brands all that time on how do you, how do you make the most of that? And usually to make the most of meeting the needs of today's digital customers really requires transformation. It's not just about, you know, sort of creating a great app because as soon as you start to think about, well, what do you want that digital experience to be and do? First of all, you often need transformation to even just be able to create that, but also it reaches back into the rest of the organization. It changes your operational processes. It may change your product mix. It may change uh, you know, your, um, your fundamental business model, as we see with some of the most successful digital companies today, you know, like an Airbnb or an Uber, they're completely rethinking their whole industries based on digital. And of course, there's also the opportunity to empower your teams and employees with digital. And as a result, very often, again, change your business processes, change your um, you know, job roles and descriptions and all those things. So digital is a massive wave of business transformation. And, um, and as a result, you know, my goal was never really to transform businesses. My goal was only to create great experiences for customers. But I came to realize that the two go hand in hand and you cannot do one without the other. Absolutely. And, and you so preempted my, my next question, which was how do you define transformation? But I think we've, you've covered that off re- really well, actually, in that in, in introduction. Um, you describe in your book, um, uh, Winning Digital Customers, um, as a blueprint uh, for how a company can um, go through the process to remake itself and win in the digital world. just want to give us a, a quick overview of what you see that blueprint to uh, being and what, what, it, what it would uh, consist of? 
Sure. Well, the blueprint is five steps, and I'd be happy to give you an overview of the five steps. But I think the most important philosophical idea behind the approach that I advocate to transformation and the approach that I've seen be the most successful after working with dozens and dozens and dozens of large brands and, frankly, seeing many very successful transformations and being a part of and perhaps partially responsible for some not very successful transformations as well. So uh, many years of trying and different things, you start to see the patterns of what works and what doesn't work. And I think that the most fundamental principle is that transformation be driven by the customer. And I don't think that's how most companies think about Mm -hmm. transformation. And so, you know, and what I mean by that really is, you know, a lot of companies today agree, digital transformation, yes, you know, it's a buzzword, we need to transform, which is great. That's a change from what it was a number of years ago. But, you know, transformation really is just a fancy word for change or large scale change. You know, you can change a company in a way that makes it much worse. So change in and of itself is not inherently good. What you need to do is to be able to aim that change and transformation for something. And what do you want to aim toward? You aim for something that's going to make your business better. um, And what would be better? Well, usually that means growth, more revenue, higher profit margin, higher level of uh, valuation of the company. So these are obvious things. But then you have to ask, well, but what does that, right? Because it's hard to aim a transformation, say our transformation is improve our stock price. Well, okay, but like, how do you get there? And the answer to that is almost always through the customer, because when businesses transform in a way that create more value for their customer, make things more convenient for their customer, make them more desirable to their customer, make their customer less price sensitive, make their customer want to tell their friends about the business and uh, stay with the business longer, all these things, these are almost always the primary factors that drive a business to success. They're not the only factors. But if you're doing all of that right, if you're effectively driving your customer's behavior, that will make up for a multitude of sins if your, you know, I don't know, ERP system is not perfect or your supply chain could use optimization and whatnot. And if you have all that other stuff perfect, you've got the world's best supply chain, but your customers aren't really interested in what you're offering, probably doesn't matter much. So uh, I I think it's a really good point, actually, because so many people um, or so many organizations focus upon, like you say, the ERP system or the supply chain process. And, and very rarely do they put themselves in the customer's shoes and looking yeah. at what they're trying to do through, through the eyes of the customer. Um, and I've never, I've never checked this out, um, but I suspect there'd be a big correlation between those that do look at it from the, through the eyes of the customer and, and successful transformation and those that don't and unsuccessful transformation. Yeah, there's a lot of data out there. and You have to look at the details of the methodology of how things were studied, but that customer-centric companies yeah. on the whole tend to be those companies that are the most successful. And yeah, Forrester yeah. or Gartner or McKinsey or others like that often publish studies to that effect. And if you think about some of the companies that are the most successful, have seen the greatest growth, just anecdotally, Amazon, Apple, yeah. these are clearly companies that are very customer-centric and whose ongoing transformation is very much driven by meeting the needs of the customer. So, yeah, I think that um, that is, uh, you know, an idea that isn't necessarily at the heart, as you say, of a lot of transformations. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you don't need to redo your ERP system. You very well might. But it's a question of what's the means and what's the end. And the end, and if you don't have the end in mind, then you could be that you're focusing on some means that aren't getting you really where you need to go, either on the totality of it, meaning 
Maybe redoing your ERP system is not the priority or in the details. Maybe you should redo your ERP system, but redo it how? To do what? With what features? With what capabilities? What are the priorities? And um, understanding what's the customer's current experience and how are we trying to create a better one it should be the rallying cry for everything, whether that's improving your technology or reorganizing your team or changing your KPIs, whatever you're doing, the end goal should be improve the value that you can deliver to the customer. And so the, when you look at the five steps that I talk about in my book, the first is understand the customer. That's the yeah. first of the five steps. And I think that most large enterprises, my non-scientific gauge would be understand their customer at about a six out of 10. Yeah. I don't think there's companies that completely are clueless about their customer. That would be pretty hard. But there's usually a lot of insight left on the table because they make assumptions. They learned something years ago. They believe it's still true and it might no longer be true. They're not paying close enough attention to all their key different customer segments and what they're really prioritizing, focusing on, wanting, et cetera. And by the way, COVID has been a huge change function on our societies and on all of us as individuals. Our priorities, our fears, our desires have all been adjusted yeah. as a result of going through this shared, whatever you want to call it, extended crisis, whatever it is, just like past things have happened in society, like major world wars that have really changed people's philosophies and, and, and priorities. And so whatever you thought you knew about your customer before COVID, it's not necessarily 100% different, but it's shifted enough that your information is now out of date. And so in my book, I talk about a lot of research techniques. So how do you understand the customer? You can understand your customer from looking at data. You can understand your customer from talking to your customer, interviewing them, observing them, um, conducting different types of you know direct research, like bringing them into a usability lab and having them yeah. go through your app and watching and seeing what problems they have. You can also learn a lot about your customer from talking to what I call customer experts. Most organizations have people who spend their time all day, every day with customers. Some of those people may have been with you for five years, 10 years, 20 years, but very often those are not the people sitting in conference rooms making decisions about the transformation. Yeah, it's so interesting, a, actually, in the UK, there's a, an organization called Timpsons, uh, and uh, the, um, the guy who, who's been running Timpsons for um, many, many years um, has written a number of books, but it's all about this upside down style of management. So where there's a typical hierarchy in an organization, it starts with the chief exec and goes down to the front line. He looks at it completely the other way because the most important people in the organization are the people that are interfacing with the customers on a day-to-day -day basis. And everybody else, everybody else within the organization is there to support them to do the best job that they can do in front of the customer. Yeah, I, I think that's a good insight. And clearly those people are important in a variety of ways, including the fact that if they're not feeling happy and inspired and enthusiastic, then that's gonna be felt by the customer. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in a transformation process, those people are an incredible source of insight. They may not always be, or even usually be the people who can figure out what the future journey should be. They, they might have ideas, but you know, they may not have that expertise, but they understand the customer. So, and this is why we have five steps and we don't try to lump it all into one step, right? Yeah. The first step is just to understand. 
And by the way, it's very tempting to jump to a solution. Say, oh, we're going to transform. Here's what we need: drones, artificial, you know, uh, artificial, uh, you know, augmented reality, um, AI, ERP upgrades. We've been wanting to do this for years. Maybe, maybe, but yeah, and that's and that's what a lot of times happens, isn't it? Especially when it's being driven from a technology perspective, because the new shiny object comes around, and um, organizations try to justify the investment in that new shiny object. And look That's at right. things from a completely the wrong perspective. Yes, yes. And, and, and that's a natural desire that people have. You know, they want something and a reason to get it comes along. Yeah. Uh, and this is why we need methodology, right? Which yeah. is why people left to their own devices sometimes go down the same rabbit holes that other companies have gone down, which is why a process to say, okay, hang on, those are all possible things we should do, but let's put those on a list. But hang on, there's a step before, a couple steps before we start thinking about which new technology to invest in. The first of which is understand the customer. Yeah. And so in my book, I go into great detail about what specifically do you want to understand about your customer? And by the way, that may vary a little bit by industry, but there's a process that we talk about called developing research questions, which is really before you can even understand your customer, you have to understand, ask the question, what about the customer am I trying to understand? Yeah. And so there's a process for figuring that out and then a wide range of techniques to gather that data so that if you go through that process or even, you know, you don't have to use every single technique in the book. I try to give a lot. Um, and by the book way, the book also comes with access to a password protected website with, with additional videos and actually three bonus eBooks, uh, including one that goes into even more detail on techniques. For example, if you're doing an interview, how do you make sure the questions you ask aren't just leading you to the answers you want? How do you interview somebody in the most effective possible way? You know, if you ask customers, what do you think our new product should be? You're now asking your customer to be a product designer and they may uh, be enthusiastic about telling you what they think it should be, but that doesn't mean that they are in any way qualified to give you high quality information. On the other hand, if you ask the customer, tell me about your experience the last time you used our product, what happened? What were you trying to do? What, you know, how did you begin? What success did you have? What problems did you encounter? Well, they're actually extremely qualified to tell you about that. Yeah. And so once you understand that in detail, there may be other people on your team, engineers, user experience experts, strategists, who are able to take those insights and then think about, well, what would be a solution? You know, Henry Ford famously said, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yes. So you know, fine, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't speak to your customers. It just means don't ask them what they want. Ask them what their experience is. And of course, there are many nuances to what you should ask them, but that's just a fundamental idea to say when you go understand the customer, it matters a great deal how you go about it. And that's true for a wide range of different uh, research techniques we talk about. So that's the first step. Um, should I just keep going through the- uh, No, yeah, it's, it's actually great, yeah. Sure. So, so then the second step is to map the journey. Because one thing for me to understand understand an individual and what they care about and want. But it's another thing for me to really specifically understand. Well, first of all, when ma mapping the journey has kind of two parts, the one that people think about most is like a future state journey map. What do we want that North Star aspirational customer experience to be? And that's very important things to, to get to. But before I do that, I always want to get real clarity on what's happening now. And, you know, when customers come into your stores, what really happens? How do they really find the product on the shelf? When they have a problem, what really occurs? And very often it's not 
the theoretical what's supposed to happen. And, and likewise on your app or your website or your call center and whatnot. So making sure we really understand what actually occurs today and where are the greatest points of pain that customers are experiencing or frustration or confusion or disappointment, negative emotions. You know, uh, one thing, you know, I, I've done a lot of work over the years with Tony Robbins. And one of the things he says all the time is that the quality of our life is the quality of our emotions. And so I would say the correlate of that is the, the, the quality of someone's experience of your brand is the quality of their emotions when they're experiencing your brand. And if their emotions are positive ones, and there are many positive emotions, right? They can be happy, enthusiastic, delighted, having fun, you know, there's many. But if they're, then there are many negative emotions. And if they're having all these negative emotions, that's, well, let's just call it bad. So, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's probably pulling down their level of loyalty and, and enthusiasm about continuing to do business with you. So identifying those in the current journey, this should really be, the sort of foundation for transformation and not let's install a cool new system that does ABC. Now it may turn out that in order to solve those problems that are frustrating your customers, exactly what you thought you needed is what you needed. You do need a new ERP. That's fine. Good. But at least now you've started from the right place. You started from the end. You haven't started by grabbing some means and hoping that it will drive you to a good end. Yeah. Because again, all too often, if you, if you go down the route of, yeah, let's have that North Star and defining very clearly what that is. You might get there and you're still having the same issues and the same problems and, and, and still having a big percentage of your customer base not very comfortable with what, what, what they're experiencing and the emotional well, impact that that well, has. Well, well, that's right. I mean, how many people launch a new product? And when they launch it, they're so excited about it. They've got this thing and they're like, I'm launching this. I love it. It's fantastic. You know, I've got the first one off the production line. It's just what I envisioned the product would be. And then they put it on the market and it turns out, they're the only ones who liked it. <laughs> it meets their needs, but there's not enough, there's not a leverage of market or the price isn't something the market thinks it's worth. And in the end, this is an unsuccessful product. You know, I see studies all the time that say, you know, 75% of all new products launched fail, that sort of thing. And I see studies as well from Gartner and others, you know, 70% of transformations fail. And of course, you got to look more detail. What do they mean by fail? You know, does it mean they totally failed? But, but clearly, this is, you know, most uh, efforts to launch something new that are transformational are a long way from batting a thousand. Mm-hmm. And while on the one hand, I think you have to be willing to fail in order to be successful. You can't demand that everything is so certain that you know it couldn't possibly fail because then you'll never take a risk. Yeah. But on the flip side, it's sort of like saying, you know, if I fire uh, an arrow, I can't be guaranteed that I'll hit the target. Of course mm-hmm. not. But if I aim the arrow I'm a heck of a lot more likely to hit the target than if I wear a blindfold. I think that's pretty obvious. And I think that some of these types of things that we're talking about, doing customer research, understanding the current journey, and looking at where the real pain is today, because the pain is probably what's holding people back from buying more from you or from recommending you more or willing to pay more. This is how we aim the transformation. So it's super important. And then once you all understand all that, getting to your vision of the future then becomes not just a sort of a, a random flight of fancy but rather a strategic approach to addressing those points of pain that people have in your existing experience. And often, you know, I, I always like to think there's, there's two kinds of pain. There's what I call accepted pain and there's blame pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and blame pain is when the customer standing in line for 40 minutes waiting to check out and they're like, why isn't this store better? Why does it take so long? Why aren't there more cashiers? 
or they might even blame themselves. Why did I come shop for my Thanksgiving dinner right before Thanksgiving? I'm sorry, I realize you're in uh, yeah. you're in the UK. So uh, my Boxing Day dinner before Boxing Day, <laughs> some kind of uh, British example. But in any case, um, but but of course, whether they're blaming the brand or whether they're blaming themselves, they're having a, or they're blaming the person in front of them for having yeah. too many items in their cart. Whatever, they're blaming somebody, and that's a negative emotional experience. And so, of course, by removing that, we create a better emotional journey and something that's going to be more competitive. And, but then we've got accepted pain. And I think that's also fascinating because not all transformation is designed to just remove pain. It's sometimes designed to create cool new stuff that maybe people weren't complaining about before. But what I've observed is most of the time when somebody creates something new that nobody was asking for or doesn't address something people were complaining about, it's actually addressing what I call accepted pain. So I, I'll go back to the example I gave before. You know, I, I blame somebody if I have to wait 30 minutes to check out at the grocery store. But if it takes five minutes, I don't blame anybody. I accept that going to the grocery store, there's going to be a short wait to check out. And then I've got to wait while they ring up my stuff. It's just part of the deal. I've accepted it. But Amazon all of a sudden then creates something like the Amazon Go store. Mm. And you just go get what you want off the shelf and you just walk out. There's no cashiers at all. There's no lines anywhere ever. Now, what you've really done is you've removed a point of pain, but it's just our point of whatever you want to, word you want to use, inconvenience, whatever. Yeah. But I wasn't perceiving it that way. I was perceiving yeah. it as something I accepted. And then when you remove an accepted point of pain, that creates delight. Removing a, a blame pain simply takes you from a negative emotion to kind of a neutral emotion. But removing accepted pain takes you from a neutral emotion to a positive emotion. And so, oh, when you it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because uh, you know, there's there's a there's a big assumption in that that actually mm -hmm. people are not willing to wait in the line for five minutes. I, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's who's based in Boston, and we were talking about the Amazon ghost stores, and he was uh -huh. saying there's been a bit of a pushback in the states. From, from lots of people because they, they quite enjoy the interaction of the person in the stores, you know, um, uh, putting their groceries in the bags for them, where it is the British person that's moved out to, 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 to the US. And we, we don't have that sort of service in the UK, or we used to do, but we, we, we got rid of it many years ago. And then we said there's been a bit of a pushback on Amazon in some of, in some of the places where they've got these stores because they haven't got that personal interaction. So it's, it's, it's a, I think it's another case of one size doesn't fit all. So you can't, it's very difficult to push people down a particular, everyone down a particular route. You need to have flexibility and, and, and options for people. But uh, it comes back to that original point that you were talking about, isn't it? Put yourself in the shoes of the customer and, and make sure that you're meeting their requirements, not your perception of their requirements. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And, um, I hadn't heard that, and I can't speak to the differences in UK versus US culture <laughs> too effectively, but I, I'd say this. You're absolutely right in saying that one size does not fit all. Having said that, you know, I mean, there are people who still won't use an ATM card because they enjoy seeing the bank teller. You know, yeah. um, uh, you know there are, there's a woman here uh, named Fran Leibowitz. I don't know if you know her there in the UK, no, but she's, no. uh, she's uh, I guess you could call her a comedian, but she's now in her 80s, I think. And we, there was just a whole documentary done by Martin Scorsese on HBO. I don't know if you guys have that over there. Yeah. But one of the things that makes her so fascinating is that she won't use a computer. She won't use a, a smartphone. She rejects yeah. all of that. She writes. She still writes. She writes on an old typewriter. 
an electric typewriter. She's not going all the <laughs> way back to the manual typewriter. She will use an electric typewriter, you know, and she's just a fascinating character because she's such an outlier. Yeah. And would she like an Amazon ghost store? No, I don't think so. But there's just the one of her, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe there's a few dozen people like that running around New York City. So yeah, there's always going to be outliers. But I think I wouldn't ever bet against convenience as a business strategy. You know, there are some people who will say, oh, you know, I love my vinyl records. You know, there's, you know, nostalgia can play a role. Resistance to change is a, a factor in both internally at companies and with consumers. Absolutely. In fact, I, I did a, a live cast recently on, I think it was the eight or nine factors to consider when trying to assess whether something new is likely to replace something pre-existing. So, you know, right. will, will digital currency completely replace cash, for example? And I won't go into all of that here. I spent 30 minutes on a live cast <laughs> on it, but, you know, but, but there are various factors, including does it cost more money or less money? Is it easier or harder, you know, et cetera. And one of them is a sense of nostalgia because people like very often what's in the past. But then again, those people eventually get old and die, you know, yeah. <laughs> and the next generation doesn't necessarily feel the same way. Um, so, but I think in general, the three things that have time and time again been shown to be the hallmarks of companies that are growing today, not necessarily appealing to everybody, but growing, yeah. which means they appeal to a large percentage, hyper-convenience, personalization, and value shift, which basically means give me more for less. Yeah. And if you can do those things, yeah, someone might come along and say, oh, but what about the lovely experience of standing in line? Yes, but I don't think that's going to be a majority. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So we, uh, I think we covered three of your five. Do you want to go quickly go sure. through the other Actually two, two uh, but I'll go through the others oh. quickly. Okay. So the first, the first was to understand the customer and the second was yeah. to map the journey. The third is to build the future. And these three are kind of done in serial. You know, first you understand, then you map the journey, and then you're going to build it. Now, of course, you're not 100% in serial. You're going to continue to learn more about the customer as you go. You're going to continue to refine your customer journey. But in the book, I talk at length about design thinking and how to use those principles to take the larger journey that you've created, which is a little bit of a 10,000-foot view. What's the complete experience you want to deliver from the beginning to the end? You know, if it's a vacation you're selling, how do they find out about you? How do they book it? What happens before they arrive? How do they travel there? How do they arrive? What happens when they're there? What happens when they leave? To breaking that down into the individual components you need to create. Well, I need to create a reservation tool. I need to create a, an app for the agenda when people are there. I need to create a tool for this or that or the other thing. So now you've got all these discrete products you need to create that make up the journey. And how do you go about breaking them down, prioritizing them, and figuring out how to make sure each of those really delivers for the customer? Because you not only have to have the right idea from a big picture perspective, but you have to have the details right. And so getting going through the process of using design thinking principles and agile um, practices to drive speed and iteration uh, is what we talk about in that third section about build the future. And then the last two um, kind of happen parallel with the first three. So you have these first three, understand, map, and then build, which at a very, very high level sounds very sort of simplistic, but that's why this is a 400-page book, right? <laughs> so I go into each of those areas and say, yes, but how do you do this? What have I seen in my 25 years of doing this that works, that doesn't work? What are all the tips and techniques? But while you're doing those three things, the fourth thing, which happens the whole duration of those, is to optimize the present. Because what often happens is you create this ambition, vision of the future, and then how long is it going to take you to get there? Probably years, you know? And it should, because if not, then maybe it's not ambitious enough. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that your customers or your shareholders are willing to wait years for you to deliver more value. 
And there's almost always things that you can do quickly and easily in, a, in an ad hoc way that may not be perfect. They may not get you all the way to customer love, but they nevertheless start to improve areas where you're currently disappointing, confusing, frustrating your customers today. And so you want to have a parallel effort looking at those things. Um, and then the last of the five is lead the change. And of course, leadership doesn't really start at the end. It starts at the beginning. But we talk about it last in my book because I always feel it's first nice to get a landscape of what is all the stuff you have to make happen and then end by asking the question, what type of leadership is it going to take to actually be able to drive transformation? And I think that tr leadership is really the, the most important aspect of transformation because transformation always is resisted, always resisted, not by everybody, but by a majority. And therefore, the way a leader... It visualizes and plans and strategizes the transformation, inspires people to believe in it, and continues to shepherd it as the transformation hits the inevitable problems that it will hit along the way, really is the number one determinant of success or failure of that transformation. And, and I think you absolutely agree with you. And, and, and that, especially if, as you say, transformation by definition is big, it tends to be complex, it, it's often multi year. And, and the challenge on those multi-year programs is to maintain the momentum okay. um, and keep people going down that track that you've set um, and to, to deliver that North Star, as we, as we spoke about earlier. What, what, what things have you found um, are really beneficial in helping organizations maintain that momentum? Yeah, I talk about a lot in the book. I'll give you a few. First of all, the optimize the present is helpful, particularly yeah. when you tie it and see it as part of the transformation because you're showing value quickly. A second is to set expectations regarding what the journey will really look like. Because sometimes when we're selling transformation, we paint a rosy picture. Oh, we'll just do A, B, C, D, and E, and then you know, unicorns and rainbows at the other end. And that may make it easier to get someone to say yes, to get the funding, to get the organizational alignment, but it's not going to go that way. And so when you set that expectation and then you start down the road and you start to hit, you know, there's an ogre in your path. There's a giant, you know, sinkhole that you have to figure out how to get around. Uh, people start to look at that and go, oh, this is not what we expected. You know, maybe this isn't working. So it's very powerful to let people know in advance, look, guys, this is not going to be easy. We are going to encounter problems. And when we do, the, what's good to know is that we will be able to find a way through that. And create the feeling that the success of the progress, because of course, you know, the problem is the success of the transformation can really only be measured at the end. So then when you're partway through, how do you measure the success of the progress? Very often with big transformation, it's like building a skyscraper, right? When the skyscraper is half built, you can't use it half. You can't use it at all till it's done. You know, that might not be totally true with a skyscraper, but just go with my metaphor here for a second. You know? <laughs> like you can't, you can't move in just because a house is half built, you know, or you can't move in for half the day when the house is half built, you know, you have to finish the house before you can move in at all. So it's like this with transformation. And so uh, you can't measure the progress using the KPIs of the ultimate transformation, except for the part that's the optimize the present, but the rest of it, you can't because you haven't finished building the thing. We haven't gone to the moon yet. So you can't measure the progress, but you can um, set expectations, both that it's going to be a difficult journey. So when those things happen, people don't use that as a measure of failure. Because the biggest challenge that transformations have, and you alluded to it earlier, is that somewhere along the line, someone decides it's not working and they just give up, right? Mm -hmm. That's why most diets fail, right? How many people go on a diet to lose 30 pounds? They actually lose three pounds yeah. and then they stop. 
Yeah. Why? Uh, you know, whatever. So, um, and then of course, to gain three pounds back or more. Um, that's what I do. But anyway, <laughs> so, so I think that, um, you know, that's one thing. And then I guess I'll just mention one other, which is, um, uh, uh, you, know, you, you need to um, define milestones of success. You know, it, what is, when is our first party? What is the first thing? And you need to do that in advance. You need to say, you know, we're building this new product and our first major milestone will be getting a thousand paying customers. Now, maybe you're going to spend a hundred million dollars on this product and the customers pay $10 a month. So having a thousand customers is a long way from a business success, but you define that in advance of a milestone and people can see it approaching. And when you cross it, they have this feeling of this is a milestone past. And it's essential to do that in advance because otherwise, if you get to a thousand and you're like, you know, we just got a thousand, we should celebrate that. Everyone's like, oh yeah, whoop de doo a thousand customers. Because it seems like you just invented that as a reason to celebrate because things aren't going well. You know? <laughs> but when you tell people in advance, this is how it's going to go, it's going to be a hockey stick. You know, It's going to be slow growth until we reach certain inflection points. And then you can show them, look, we're on the hockey stick. It may not seem intuitively like major progress, but we are making that progress. Then people are like, oh, okay, we're on plan. Um, so those are some strategies, and there are certainly many more. Yeah, interesting. And um, so the concepts of uh, of celebrating mini successes, absolutely buy into. But I, I like the idea of setting them up ahead of schedule and showing them where those where those celebrations are going to be. Uh, yeah. And as you said, setting those milestones in place is is is, uh, is a really interesting way of looking. And, at I, and I'll give you one more. Like I say, there's many more in the book, but but I'll give you one more, which is find an enemy. People love enemies, you know. I mean, one of the reasons why we see so much military buildup around the world is because people feel like there's an enemy. We've got to create so much of the technology, as a matter of fact, that we use in the digital world today came about because of military. Because someone said, Well, we have an enemy, and that led to the development of you know, satellite imaging, which led to digital cameras. It led to the development of the internet. It led to the development of the microprocessor. All these things were funded by the government because of the perception of an enemy. Now, of course, that's kind of a negative thing, focus on an enemy. But, you know, in, in business, we have competitors. You know, our competitors are ahead of us because when you feel like you're in the middle of something where there's pressure, you're less likely to lose steam on something. You know, if, if, you're, if you're running around, if you're jogging to get healthy, you can jog for a mile and go, oh, I'm done. If you're jogging to get away from a lion that's chasing you, you're yeah. probably not going to stop, even if you're not sure it's going to work, because what the hell else are you going to do? Yeah. So when people feel that there's that kind of a burning platform and an imperative, you know, they may still feel like things aren't going quite right. We need to make a change, turn left, turn right. But to just stop the transformation, that doesn't seem practical. And I think that feeling of a burning platform or an enemy can also be very helpful. No, I agree. Uh, and, and, and I was talking to, uh, talking to a client about this the other day, um, and we're using the um, analogy of a cliff edge. Um, and, and, and if you, uh, burning platform, cliff edge, uh, if you ever wanted a, an example of how quickly people can change, um, COVID was that. You know, in, in the UK, we, we went into lockdown, I think on the 23rd of March, um, 2020, and, and everyone stopped going into the office. Things, mm-hmm. just, we, we went over the cliff. We had to change. Yeah. Uh, and the chief exec I was talking to the other day, she was saying she's, she's been able to change her organisation far quicker within six months 
significant change that would probably have taken us two or three years pre-COVID. Yeah. And so because we, we now know that we can change if we have if we have a demand to change. Uh, and all too often, as you said earlier, people put their head down at the point of change because they fear yeah. it. Crisis is a great driver of transformation. You know, that to use our weight loss example, you know, people struggle for years to lose weight. And all of a sudden, if they go to the doctor and he says, you know, we've just done a test, you're going to have a heart attack within six months and die if you don't lose 20 pounds. Look how fast that person loses 20 pounds, you know, yeah, because absolutely. now they're in a crisis. So absolutely. it's not fun to be in those types of situations. But when you want to look at the full toolbox, it's also not fun to have your company go out of business because you failed to transform, you know. So it's not all, uh, it's not necessarily manufactured when we have these crises and we of course see today more than ever so many great great brands that are no longer in business because they failed to transform fast enough yeah absolutely absolutely so taking your five um elements within the book mm -hmm. if you could only have one of them you know uh, uh, to drive forward what, what what it's probably an unfair question but which uh -huh. one do you think is the most important well, you know, the question makes me think of the fact that I also have five children. So if you ask me, you know, which one of those would I keep? You know, I, I guess what I would say is, if I have to pick one, it's a very mean question you've asked me, Tony, but if I have to pick one, I pick leadership. Because I think if you have great leadership without structure, people will become resourceful yeah. and they will figure out what to do. And maybe this is cheating on, my, on your question, but they will probably go get information about the customer and they will, they will figure it out if they are sufficiently inspired and have strong enough leadership. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that, that if, if I had to pick one of those, it would definitely be leadership because the, the, a good leader can always create the environment to, to allow the other things to happen. Mm -hmm. The other things will struggle to happen if you didn't have that strong leader. But a close second is to understand the customer. Yeah. Because if you've got a great military leader who everyone is following, but he doesn't actually have a good map, doesn't know where the enemy is, doesn't know where the landmines are, they may they may follow him right to their deaths, you know? <laughs> so, so, uh, so that's so quite that important. Positive note. <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, well, I suppose the final question from my perspective, where, where can people get the book? Uh, sure. Well, you can probably find it most places. Um, out there, I, you can certainly get the Kindle book. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you can order the physical book from Amazon in the UK or not, to be honest. But um, if you go to the uh, the book also has a website, which is winningdigitalcustomers.com. And if you go there, uh, you can get links to all the places you can get the books from, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and other places. It's in the normal book distribution chain, uh, as well as download the first chapter for free. So if you're interested in the book, that might be a good place to start. Check out the first chapter and hopefully you'll love it so much you want to keep reading and get the whole book. Brilliant. And uh, if anyone's got any questions or comments, are you quite happy for you for me yeah. to collect? Yeah. Well, you know, the best you? way to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. I post a ton. I do videos every week. I have a new LinkedIn newsletter that I just launched. So you can look me up, Howard Tiersky, T I E R S K Y, on LinkedIn, and that is where I hang out most of the time. Brilliant. Well, we'll put uh, links to the book and the website and your LinkedIn profile on the show notes. So wonderful. Uh, Sounds with great. that, Howard, thank you very much. It's been uh, insightful and, um, and, and really great session. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Howard, what a great podcast. Thank you very much for your time and for the insights that you have shared. The Transformation Leaders Group is continuing to grow and we have recently launched the 1% Club. So if you're a freelance consultant looking to transition into the world of consultancy, 
reach out to us and schedule a one-to-one strategy session where we'll go in depth looking at what it will take to make that transition successful. Thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.